Hey guys, welcome to Pheasant Friends. This is episode seven of the podcast. I'm here with my great friend, um, former colleague as well, Imani Oakley. Uh, we worked together briefly on the Working Families uh, New Jersey. Uh, what is that, like an organizing effort or organizing group? Um, and you are by trade a lawyer and an incredibly inspiring organizer, a former uh, congressional candidate as well. Um, how are you doing today? Um, I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, it's very hot. I'm not a summer person. <laughs> I'm a very much a fall winter person. So you know, it's it's okay. It's okay. But I'm doing good though. How are you? I'm doing doing really well. Uh, same thing. Well, I'm out in Memphis now, uh, so the the heat has been pretty crazy out here. We've been getting hundred degree weathers, uh, hundred degree days, like. Um, almost the entirety of last week, um, I had some air conditioning problems, but thankfully everything is sorted out now. Yeah, it's, that's not what you want to have in, in like the South when it, it gets uh, ridiculous. Um, but everything is good now, um, which is exciting. Um, but I wanted to, I really wanted to have you on because uh, you just had a primary campaign recent, uh, recently. Um, you faced uh, Representative Donald Payne Jr. in the, uh, the New Jersey 10th Congressional District. Um, that uh, to me is a really interesting race because um, that that seat, first of all, it's in Newark, New Jersey, which is a, a place that I kind of went to school in. Um, I was not necessarily raised there, but I spent a lot of time, almost seven years in Newark. So it's an area that's you know very dear to me. I think that's uh, when I ran for office a couple years ago, that's where I ran and I think that's where I met you as well, um, was during that campaign. But um, can you tell me a little bit about that race and uh, how it went um, and what uh, were your uh, initial thoughts, first of all, like in terms of getting the idea to run for office, but also um, why that particular seat and your, your thoughts on the, uh, the representative? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I wanted to run for office because as you know, as somebody who's run yourself, like New Jersey has an extreme machine style of Tammany Hall politics. And it especially hurts the most vulnerable people in society. So it hurts people of color, hurts women, hurts working class folks, um, hurts people in the LGBTQ plus community. Like, you know, it really, really is hurtful for everybody who is not part of the status quo. And, you know, NJ10 is the only majority black district in New Jersey, um, and it has been for years now. And it also is the number one place in the country as of 2019 for foreclosures. And it's still right now, actually, I read an article the other day that this area actually has another looming foreclosure crisis on its hands. Um, it's one of the top places in the country for childhood asthma. Uh, we have issues with lead in the drinking water. Um, we have constantly rising rent. So people are constantly being pushed out of here, not being able to afford it. And what do you have? You have this congressman who doesn't show up, uh, barely shows up to work, has one of the lowest attendance rates out of all members of Congress, um, including Republicans. And he has a district that has so much need after inheriting the seat from his father, right? Um, so, you know, I decided to run for office because this district actually needed somebody to fight for them. It needed somebody from this area to actually fight for them. I've lived in this area my entire life. I moved to this house that I'm actually talking to you from when I was three years old. Um, moved one time from the apartment down the street, uh, when I, which is where I was an infant at, uh, into this house. So, you know, I'm from this area. I understand the issues here. Uh, I nearly lost this home again that I'm sitting here talking to you from to foreclosure. We almost lost it to foreclosure. 
foreclosure. So I really do understand the issues. And I felt like it was time to have representation that really adequately matched um, the people in this district. Now, unfortunately, it didn't go our way. Uh, I had an opponent who spent nearly a million dollars uh, to beat me, uh, if not actually by the end, actually, you know, spending a million. Um, all corporations, including corporations like Covanta, which is which are one of the biggest polluters, not only in the nation, but also in Newark, where my opponent is actually from. So all of the black and brown kids who are getting asthma, anybody who is suffering from any lung diseases or anything of that nature uh, in Newark, Covanta is a big reason for that. And the Enviros have you know, been suing them, have been marching against it, et cetera. And my opponent took money from them. Um, he took money from several oil pipeline packs. Uh, he took money from weapons manufacturers. He took money from Wells Fargo, one of the most predatory lenders in the country, in the country, uh, especially, for black and brown folks, right? And he was taking money from them. So we got wildly outspent. We were outspent three to one overall, and we were outspent on digital five to one. So, you know, we got grossly outspent. And unfortunately, the campaign didn't go our way. But, you know, I, the thing that is positive that, to that I took away from this is that so many more people on a national level now understand how corrupt New Jersey is. I mean, I had a lot of people who were paying attention, who donated, and who were rooting for us from outside of New Jersey as well as within. And the people outside New Jersey were like, you know, I would have never known any of this about New Jersey if it wasn't for your race, um, right. which I think is a win for us because now it's starting to break down the facade that the machine has put up that New Jersey is just a sweet little suburban blue state. And now that's starting to get chipped away. People also saw um, as well as going on NJ08 uh, with uh, Senator Menendez anointing his son and, you know, David, the progressive challenger there and Mario yeah. down South Jersey. So it's really starting, the, the facade is starting to strip away in very meaningful ways, which I'm very, very happy for. So we got some wins. Um, we also won the redistricting fight as well. Uh, so during, you know, this past year, it was redistricting. And as we saw in really all across the country, progressives were getting redistricted out of their districts, as well as Black folks were having their voting power obliterated. Um, and we saw this, you know, with Marie Newman, actually, recently, she was like, they, the way they cut her lines, was, like, literally, they cut it a block out of her house, like away from her house. Um, she was right outside her district by like a block. And, you know, it changed the demographics changed who, you know, people were used to having represent her represent them. Um, and unfortunately, she lost her race. Um, we were fortunate enough to have fought back against the redistricting here, they were trying to strip the historic black community in Montclair out of NJ10 and put it in NJ11 to protect Mikey Sherrill, um, who also did not want to move. So Mikey Sherrill was actually a resident of NJ10 for four years. Um, and the machine said, don't worry, of course you have all the money in the world to, to move. Of course you should actually move so you're in the district that you represent. You can understand what people are going through there, but don't worry about that. We'll just cut the lines a certain way so you don't have to move at all, which is mind-blowing, right? So, but those Black folks in those historically Black neighborhoods would have then um, had their voting power go from 53% to down to about eight or 9%, which is absurd, wow. right? That yeah. is absurd to obliterate voting power that much because a sitting member of Congress does not want to spend their 175K a year uh, check to get another house in their right. district. 
it's it just out of control. So we ended up fighting back really hard against that. And we weren't able to save this black neighborhood. So I am very proud of that uh, because that is a win that we are able to, you know, really uh, own on our own. And meanwhile, my opponent did nothing for that fight. He did yeah. nothing for those black voters. No, and I, I had a similar experience um, in terms of my race where, you know, you can run a really comprehensive campaign. And I, I saw like the PR work that you guys were doing, you know, the digital spend. First of all, I mean, getting the attention of an organization like Brand New Congress, right? That's like nationalizing the race in New Jersey, where I feel like a lot of these organizations don't even look at New Jersey because they know that the, the establishment is so corrupt. Uh, Corrupted um, is a strong word, but um, when you talk about things like the, the party line issue, right, you look at Senator Bob Menendez, who is already, you know, riddled with corruption as a, a senator, right, there, there are ethics and investigations into him um, and to his candidacy and, you know, the appropriation of the funds of his campaign. But now him endorsing his, his son and, like you said, anointing him um, to a, a essentially a congressional seat very similar to what happened in your district where Donald Payne Jr. Um, took on the seat from his, his own father, right? So in New Jersey, there is the systemic history um, of just passing the torch, right? Um, I, I'm not sure if it was as clear in the Mikey Sherrill case, but I'm sure there was her predecessor probably, you know, I'm sure it wasn't a competitive primary. Um, one thing that stands out about Jersey and what that makes it difficult for organizations like Brand New Congress to come in and uh, endorse is uh, the party line structure. So can you talk to people about that? Because I think that's, um, especially because now that I'm based out of Tennessee, I know about the party line structure, but um, if we're trying to communicate to a larger nationwide audience, a lot of people won't understand what that is. So can you tell me a little bit about what that is and how that affects the race? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the ballot line in New Jersey, we have the most corrupt ballot design in the nation. Uh, we are literally the only state that has a ballot that looks this way. And what happens is the machine chooses who they want to back as their own. Um, now, mind you, everybody who's running is a Democrat, right? So it's not really a matter of like, we're backing a Democrat versus like an independent or a Democrat versus a Republican. They, they are, everybody who's running in the primary is a Democrat. So they just pick the Democrat they like. And typically that like is based on something that, you know, doesn't actually make any sense. So like, you know, they donated a lot of money to the party or they sat on a commission or board and did all the party bosses biddings or they are the son of somebody else who's politically very powerful. Um, so it's, it's never based on something like, oh, they serve their community the most, or they know the most about policy, or you know, they've worked in government the longest time. It's nothing, it's nothing like that. It, it's just anything that personally benefits them. And what they do is they take those candidates and stick them on this long column of names. Um, and, the other interesting thing is that the ballot line and the way the ballot is actually shaped changes can change from county to county. So, for example, in Essex County, the ballot uh, was horizontal. So the the, the uh, columns went you know across. And I believe in Hudson, if I remember correctly, they actually went vertically. Um, so it's not even universal from county to county. But then they put the law. I'm sorry, do you say something of this? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, yeah. So then they put these uh, their favorites on this long column, and 
that, and it's always a, the column is placed where somebody's eyes would naturally gravitate to first. So, um, you know, if, if your ballot goes horizontally, typically your eyes are going to gravitate to the top of that ballot first. So they put their line of favorites at the top. Um, if it's vertical, typically, you know, we read left to right. So they're going to put it as far left as humanly possible. Now, the other thing about that um, is that, you know, the way normal ballots look is that there's a square and in that square, it's everybody who's running for a particular office, right? Whether they're backed by the machine or not. So, you know, you'll have like Congress, for example, you'll have US Congress, and then you would have had this round, you've had three people in that one box. Then you have the next position, which could be county commissioner, it could be what, what have you. Um, and you have everybody running for that, that position in that box. And that's how most ballots look throughout the country, even in states that we pretend to be better than as far as democracy is concerned. So like North Carolina, Florida, Texas, they have those better ballot structures. And here in New Jersey, where we're pretending to be this wonderful blue state that just, you know, we're a beacon of hope in, in this sea of red in the United States, we have a ballot that is really a form of voter deception. Um, because again, the way it is arranged, people are very confused about how to vote. Um, and then the machine actually makes it even worse because when people go in to vote, they get into, people are, are, are instructed like, oh, vote straight down this line, which actually isn't supposed to happen. But guess what? Nobody is enforcing it. Um, during this past election on June 7th, we had a lot of people messaging our campaign saying that, yeah, people are saying I have to vote straight down this line. And I was like get people's names, report them to um, the, uh, depart the uh, e Department of Elections in New Jersey. Um, you can also contact ACLU, let them know this is happening. But again, like it's, it's happening on election day and there wasn't enough firepower to really do anything about it. So they, the machine knows how confusing it is to voters. Um, that's why they keep it around. That's why they know nothing about it. Right now, there are two court cases going on with regards to the ballot line. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens there. But it really, really is a hardship. Now, I do want to, after saying all of that, I do want to clear the air here because I think after years of people who have been very, very disingenuous in the progressive movement in New Jersey and are in it for their own political gain and selfishness, um, they have said that the bat line is impossible to beat. I can tell you, no, it is not. What has to be done is you have to run two types of campaigns. You have to run your congressional campaign and you have to run an issue campaign. This is really no different than what we saw in New York when people had to learn how to use their rank vote, uh, their rank choice voting apparatus. It's really no different than that. You just have to get out the word and organizations have to do the political education. But unfortunately, political organizations in New Jersey like to play both sides a lot. Um, and so that political education really has not happened and been resourced the way it really should um, be. So the ballot line is not impossible to beat. That's just something that people say so that 
year in and year out, you can continue to donate to their organization and then not deliver anything for you. It's not impossible, but it is something that you have to educate voters on and you have to put around like a million dollars because issue campaigns in general, whether it's the ballot line or anything else are typically expensive. Um, so you have to put around a million dollars into an issue campaign to uh, beat the ballot line. And then running for Congress in this area in general, you need to raise between one to three million to really be competitive. Um, so it's a very, very expensive process. And the money is really a huge hindrance to um, progressives because of course we don't take money from Covanta. We don't take money from Wells Fargo, right? We take money from everyday citizens who believe in our cause. So the ballot line is not impossible to beat, but it is, it is an expensive and endeavor. Uh, and, you know, you're right, it does scare organizations. Um, you know, I had a lot of interviews, actually, throughout the course of my time with some national orgs, some very prominent national orgs, who asked me so much about the ballot line. And it's so unfortunate that the, the, you know, the people who are supposed to be leading the progressive movement have gone on this whole tirade for years about how impossible it is to beat, despite that not being the case. And now these orgs are scared. They're actually scaring orgs off from helping us fight in New Jersey. Um, and it's really unfortunate. But what I am starting to see is organizations like uh, Progressive Democrats of New Jersey step up, um, South Jersey Progressive Democrats are starting to step up and fight against this, and other orgs that typically that are young orgs that are run by, you know, progressives who are more aggressive about fixing New Jersey and not really here to play the whole, um, sometimes I'm a part of the machine, but sometimes I'm not, they're not here for that game. They're really here to help everyday people. And they are starting to get this message out as well. So things are changing. It's, you know, slower than we want, obviously, but they are getting better. Yeah, no, I, I think it was most discouraging for me because uh, when I walked around town the day after the election, the marketing that I saw from my opponent was literally just on every single banner and like pillar uh, and telephone call. It's just a sign that says vote line A. And I'm sure you can oh, wait. Out of this. What's that? Oh, can you hear me? Am I back? Oh, uh, I cannot hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Okay, yeah. yeah, so the thing that was most discouraging to me is, you know, the day after my election, I walked through Newark and all I saw was on every telephone pole, everywhere I looked, the only marketing for my opponent was vote line A. And I feel like you, you might have had a similar experience where there's no marketing for someone like Donald Payne Jr. and his re-election campaign because you can literally just get away with saying vote line A. Um, he might have had, you know, like some endorsements or something like that, unions and stuff like that, but... They don't, they don't put in the legwork, whereas someone like you is, you know, on the phone making fundraising calls, you know, doing a dialer and all that stuff and uh, uh, reaching out to contacts. So um, it's definitely an important issue that I don't think people understand the gravity of um, on a national level. But I think uh, uh, the progressive movement um, in Jersey has a very unique challenge um, of, you know, uh, dealing with that as well. So um, it, it's definitely an interesting issue to talk about. One. Uh, comparison that I might have. How is this system similar or different to the now multi-party uh, ranked choice uh, system in New York? Uh, can you just explain that for people who might not know um, what, because I think Working Families now has its entire, a, a whole uh, line or um, candidacy of its own in New York now, right? So is that like a better version 
of democracy in the long term? Is that, you know, similar to Jersey? Like, how does that stack up? Oh, it's not similar to Jersey at all. <laughs> um, it's a much better, better form of democracy where you get to rank your voting choices. So let's say there's like four people running, you can rank them um, one to four. So you can do like your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, and it's all tallied up. And then whoever kind of gets, you know, the with one being, um, you know, the best and five being like your least liked uh, candidate. Um, and then it's added up, whoever has the most ones, you know, goes, whoever has. So it's added up and tallied so that whoever has like the most ones or most twos, et cetera, et cetera, then moves to the next round. They just keep tallying and keep tallying until there is a finally a winner. Um, so it's a much better system uh, than what we have, where really voters don't have a choice at all. I mean, most voters in New Jersey, we actually ran some digital ads about the ballot line, like doing some just education on it. Um, like, it, you know, our digital ads would have a picture of what it looks like and we would have like blacked out where the, you know, my opponents were and then have me highlighted so people could see like visually how they would have to kind of find me on the ballot. And then on our website, our campaign website, we actually had a section that was all about voter um, education on the ballot line. And, you know, we would run those digital ads and people would comment on the digital ads, like, what's wrong with New Jersey's ballot? So most people don't even know, right? Like most people don't even know that New Jersey has a different ballot than everyone else. And, and that makes sense, right? Like, why would they? Like, why? It's such a wonky issue, really. Um, like, why nobody's going to go and, like, Google other ballots and what they look like? You know what I mean? So, uh, so most voters don't even know that we have a ballot that looks like this, which is why the voter education in between elections is so, so critical, um, as well as during an election uh, is very, very critical. So uh, it, ranked choice voting is eons beyond <laughs> where we are. Um, you know, voters here are being deceived and barely choosing their candidates. Um, if you can, I mean, you can make an argument that they're not choosing their candidates at all. Um, whereas in New York, they have not only the choice to choose their candidate, but to rank all their choices uh, from one to whatever. Um, so it, they are, it's not similar at all. They are eons beyond us. So to that point, do you see, because I, I think um, we're, uh, especially like this, past election, right, 2020, um, was, a, of course, a sea change, right? We went from Republican to Democratic leadership. We went from Republican majority in the Senate to Democratic majority in the Senate um, and we maintained Congress. Do you see, but there's still discontent, right? There's still a lot of discontent, especially, and we'll talk about the Supreme Court rulings um, in a bit, but do you see a possibility of something like ranked choice to voting creating the possibility in the long term of additional parties, right? Where it's not like you're just voting for Democrat, you're not just voting for uh, Republican, but like there's actually an independent that's not just the label of independent with no viability in like a nationwide campaign. Um, do, you, do you see that as a potential um, path towards progress in this country? And so just to be clear, because you're cutting out a little bit, you're asking me, do I see like, getting independence and having ranked choice voting um, as well, options as like- The US, sorry, do you see the US kind of turning more into something like Canada where they have like, you know, four or five different parties that create coalition or like the European Union, um, essentially? Yeah, I mean, if 
the United States, if we had like say a third viable party um, that was solidly a progressive party, that would be great. But I mean, you know, I think that whole idea got a lot of steam this past round um, where people were like, the Democrats will never serve you vote third party, which like is fine as a declaration, but you need infrastructure, right? Like you need money you need resources. You can't just say we are a third party and then just be that, right? Like there are other things that you actually need to put in place so that you can actually win. Um, you know, so I, I mean, sure. But then there's also the, the possibility that, you know, that third party could come along and then become just as corrupt, right? Like really, I think it's less important what the name of the party is and more what's, what's more important is um, you know, the members of that party. I think that's really what's more important here than like whether it's, you know, another party because an independent party could come along and just be libertarians, right? And libertarians have some ideas that really aren't great. So, um, you know, I, I think I understand why people are saying, you know, screw the Democrats, vote third party, but that requires things, right? That requires more than just a declaration. It requires more than just a tweet. It requires more than just, you know, saying that you're not voting for anybody unless it's third party, right? Like it requires actual work and infrastructure. It requires like actually running candidates. It re requires staffers willing to get behind um, third party candidates. It requires money, right? Like it there are real tangible things that are required. It sounds nice to just declare that, but I don't think people are taking a moment to step back and think about what that actually looks like in practice. So maybe that would help us. Um, but I think what's more, really, I think the biggest hindrance um, in politics right now in the United States is how much money is in politics. Um, the faster we get money out of politics, the better. Uh, because right now there's just way too much money flooding in. I mean, we saw in how much money flooded in my race. Um, we're seeing progressives all over the country be flooded with money um, in, in their races. And, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. So the minute we can have publicly funded elections in this country, I actually think that will be infinitely a better solution than, you know, trying to build the infrastructure to have a third party because you're still going to have to raise the money, even if you have a third party. So I think having publicly funded elections is really a much, much better place to go um, and something better to fight for that will have tangible results. Right. So speaking about money and politics, um, I think that's a good way to talk about some of these uh, Supreme Court decisions because uh, Citizens United is, is a decision that could possibly get, you know, overturned by the Supreme Court as well. And, you know, there could just be some more limitations removed to corporate donors. I even saw in Jersey that there's a Senate bill recently um, that was labeled as a reform, an election reform bill, but it actually increased the caps of donations that were, you know, possible to flow into like people's campaigns. Um, but I did notice on your Twitter, um, you retweeted uh, Jen Rourke, who was a reproductive rights organizer um, and a progressive running for office who is, you know, punched in the face by a police officer. Um, and, you know, that's a, a good, like, there are a lot of rights that are being overturned right now in the Supreme Court. Um, you know, Roe v. Wade is, of course, you know, the one that's getting a lot of attention. But then also there's things like uh, there was a decision to limit Miranda rights as well. So police officers are now able to 
um, have more credence and more say in terms of you know what they hide, what they tell. Um, so, what are your thoughts on, on, of course, you know these the bigger decisions, but also um, of just everything that's coming out of this like divided um, Supreme Court? Um, yeah, and and then I have some yeah, basically let's just start there. Yeah, I mean. This Supreme Court is atrocious. I mean, the decisions that are coming out are, are atrocious. They're rolling back rights uh, left and right. Um, you know, we saw Roe v. Wade. Um, Miranda wasn't completely done away with, but it, it made it harder for people to seek relief if they aren't given their Miranda rights, right? So we're seeing a lot of rollbacks. Uh, Justice Thomas threatened to, that they're going to be rolling back more things, um, such as gay marriage and contraception uh, rights. So, I mean, this Supreme Court is really out of control. But you know, I think it's always important to examine how did we get here? Like being mad at the Supreme Court is one thing, right? But they're doing what they're doing. We have to examine how did we get here and how moving forward we can get rid of some of the people on those courts or do damage uh, mitigation, do damage control, um, as well as not make the same mistakes that actually got us here. Uh, you know, one of the things about Republicans is that they fight extremely hard for their backwards values, extremely hard. And when they're based on something, they they follow their base. They read the room with their base. With the Democrats and their base, I mean, like the Democrats' base could scream forever. Um, and the Democrats will just be like, you don't know anything. We know more than you. And then just lose a lot to Republicans. Um, in fact, like, you know, Democrats actually have a better winning record against progressives than they do against Republicans. And that's sad. That is extremely sad. You're fighting harder against the sect of your own party. That is number one, the most inspiring, right? And that's important because you want people to be inspired to go to the polls because that increases numbers. When people are discouraged and morale is low and people are upset at the party, less people go to the polls, um, both in the general and in primaries. That doesn't just like, I think uh, establishment Dems think that just stops with the primaries and then people then, you know, just march to the polls in, in the general. And that's not necessarily true, um, especially when you're having um, younger voters becoming the majority voters, um, the, the biggest voting blocks in the country. And they are very, very disgruntled with electoral politics. Um, so, you know, you have the corporate Dems um, really just, you know, smashing out as much as possible, the most inspiring sect of their own party, um, fighting against them tooth and nail, spending millions of dollars to fight the sect of their party that simply wants to give people more rights. And then what do you have? You have a Republican party that just tramples completely over them who they absolutely cannot defend themselves against. Um, it's really, it's embarrassing, it's scary, um, but ultimately it's what led to a Supreme Court that looks like this, that looks so conservative. It's because of how much Republicans are just willing to go for broke to get their agenda done, while we have corporate Dems and Dem leadership that are kind of like, no, we're going to take it slow, one step at a time, except when it comes to hurting progressives, we are going to do the most to do that. But everything else, we're going to take our time, you know, negotiate, you know, compensate, you know, we're going to do, we're just going to do our thing here. And then Republicans go full speed ahead. Um, so, you know, in looking at what got us here is definitely the, uh, the lack of urgency in really helping everyday people that corporate dams have.
Right. Uh, so to that point, uh, I want to highlight like the two uh, responses that I thought were probably the most credible. So uh, I don't know if you saw uh, Dana Bash's interview with uh, Vice President Harris, but when uh, VP Harris was asked about uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, she just said essentially. So Dana, the way Dana phrased it was, she said, you know, Democrats just got back the presidency. They just got back control over the Senate. They just got back control over the House. Why can't we do something about this now? Why can't we codify this into law now? And VP Harris essentially just said, do what? Like, what can we do? Um, and I think like that whole, like you call them the establishment, um, they've been just fund using this as a, another fundraising opportunity. And then the other response that I saw, which was from the progressive side, was from AOC, um, which was, let's expand the Supreme Court. Let's, uh, 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 she uh, pointed to some precedents of how um, FDR, um, when there is an issue uh, with civil rights in the Supreme Court, FDR threatened to expand the Supreme Court, um, and then it was later expanded um, by Abraham Lincoln, at least uh, that's what she had said. Um, but there's also 13 circuit courts now, um, so it used to be the case where there's nine circuit courts uh, to coincide with the nine Supreme Court justices. Uh, so another one of AOC's responses was, let's expand the eight court to 13, so it coincides with the circuit courts, uh, and then also abolishing the filibuster. So what are your thoughts on like the different strategies of like the different sectors of the Democratic Party to um, the Supreme Court? Yeah, so here's the thing, right? The problem is, is, you know, with the Kamala statement, it's very dismissive. It's very just like, well, what do you want us to do? And it's like, well, we elected you for a reason. Do, do something. I mean, do something. And you probably knew, well, not probably, I mean, the decision leaked, right? So we've known for a while that this could be coming. You could have met with the top experts in the country and figured out ways to, you know, if this, if this decision does come down, how to, again, mitigate the damage. That it, that it could do. Um, and that just didn't seem to have been done. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you have that entire issue. On the other hand, in order to do things like expand the court and other things that AOC suggested, which by the way, great suggestions, right? But in order to do that, you also still have to have the numbers, um, which right now we are playing a rough game of numbers uh, because while we have the numbers in the house, we don't have it in the Senate. Um, and then when you're talking about kind of at the state level, states going really hard to, um, you know, pass more rights to an abortion, uh, you have the issue of redistricting and how the Republican Party has gone for broke to make sure that they have um, as many red districts as possible. Um, so, you know, it really almost doesn't matter if you know, a bunch of people who were kind of dormant and didn't vote who are like, you know, Democrats um, who like galvanized to the polls if they're in a district where just numbers wise, it really won't matter even if all of them voted. Um, so we are in a difficult position when it comes to our numbers. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really going to be one of those things that's gonna be a long haul type of fix. Um, because we are going to have to, uh, one, organize the suburbs, um, something that I think is grossly lacking, both really on the progressive side and just in the corporate Dem side in general, is organizing the conservative white suburbs um, in a manner that will get them at least to vote Democrat. 
Um, whereas Republicans have been hitting at those people for a long time. I mean, you saw this with, um, you know, critical race theory. You're seeing this with school board elections. You're seeing this um, with the attack on uh, trans youth, right? They, they're attacking, they're going after the conservative suburbs. Um, and getting those people on their side, the Republicans. So there has to be a considerable amount of organizing in those areas and making sure there's a counter narrative in those areas. Um, and then the Democrats have to stop snuffing out the most inspiring aspect of their party because again, when you do that, less people go to the polls um, and they might not you know, flip and vote Republican, but even if they stay home, right, that's going to give Republicans more votes. And it's easy to just like berate people and be like, how dare you stay home in such a in such an alarming rate. But they do that every cycle. <laughs> the Democrats do that every cycle and then don't deliver anything um, or, and don't deliver on, on major promises like student loans and, and things of that nature. So, you know, it, it, after a while, people are not going to see that as a valuable statement to make, which is, you know, that how dare you not go to the polls? Don't you see how much danger we're in? When it's like, well, when I did go to the polls, really nothing substantially changed in my life. Um, so, you know, Democrats are going to have to stop snuffing out the most inspiring aspect of their party so that we can actually win elections and then have that ripple effect out um, and continue to win elections, uh, right? So, um, you know, it's it's going to be a long haul. I, I will say it's gonna be a long haul. While I love the suggestions that AOC gave, there's a lot that does require the numbers, um, which currently at the moment we, we don't have. Um, but at least she's doing something, unlike, you know, I mean, I think it's very, very flippant to say like, do what? What do you mean? Do what? We elected you for a reason. You have access to every expert in the land, figure something out. Um, but it is going to be a difficult, difficult long haul. Well, that, that's something that makes me pretty sad, too, because you have I mean, you talked about Gen Z getting involved, millennial generation getting involved in politics. Um, there was incredible, incredible displays of support for women's rights um, over the past few days um, at concerts and you know different uh, outlets. But then, you know, there's also two sectors to that, right? Because you see a lot of women coming out talking about their experiences um, and talking about the importance of uh, Roe v. Wade, not just on in terms of abortion rights, but as a healthcare issue, as a contraceptive issue, as you know, uh, all all these uh, different facets to it. But then on the other end of that uh, same conversation, you have people like Elon Musk and now Joe Rogan going to endorse Ron DeSantis. Um, when you know this is a clearly you know ludicrous decision, and this is minority rule um, in a country that supposedly has checks and balances. Um, so, what do you see, or how do you see that conversation with the the newer generation? Um, do you think that, like, I, I just think there's you there's a lot of people engaged on TikTok, but there's also a lot of conservatives that are also equally engaged, you know, following people like Elon Musk and, and Joe Rogan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, while there are conservative young people that exist, um, if you actually look at the numbers and look at the data, uh, younger folks are far more progressive, um, like, I mean, infinitely more progressive by the numbers than um, than than conservatives. So, I mean, while those like young conservatives get a lot of airspace because it's like, look, 
a, a unicorn, a young conservative, right? Like they get a lot of airtime, but they numbers wise, there aren't that many of them. Um, so, I mean, yes, they exist, but that's not really, they're not really the issue. The real issue is that the bulk of people, uh, which, you know, millennials and Gen Z as well, the bulk of those folks are progressive and the candidates they love are getting snuffed out by corporate Dems, um, which then brings down morale and, you know, creates that whole chain effect of then uh, galvanizing less people, galvanizing rather less people to the polls. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, my biggest concern there, though, is um, I, I thought the idea of a Trump presidency back in 2016 was like completely ludicrous. And then uh, after that, you know, with him being president, the Republican Party still had a, a significant amount of control and leverage. I mean, I mean, they still do. Do you think that's a, uh, do you think that's mainly in part of redistricting and like their kind of corrupted efforts to maintain power? Or do you think that um, they still do have a large base uh, of either older voters or a kind of mixed pot of voters? Well, it's two things. It's one, it's um, it's redistricting and things like that. But also they have a lot of money. Um, the Republican side has way more money than the Democrats generally um, and definitely more than the left. Um, so they have a lot of money to do whatever it is that they want to do. Uh, so it, it's the money and then it's that they've played the long game for so long. So they have judges in place. They have, you know, people in Congress. They have districts in, in place. They have governors in place, right? Like they've played the long game, um, the long game that corporate Dems have shied away from. Um, so, you know, that I think that's more of what it is rather than there's just like there's just so much. Because, again, if you look at the data, like progressive initiatives are popular. Medicare for all is actually very popular. Uh, Green New Deal is popular. Um, things like uh, legalizing marijuana, popular, right? These are very, like, these ideas are very popular, actually. Um, less war, also very popular. Um, so it, it really, when you actually look at the numbers, this country is way less conservative than what you would think looking at the people who are in power, but when the people are in, who are in power have so much money to get done what they want to get done and they're playing a long game, it makes it very, very hard to, to beat them. Gotcha. Uh, so I want to kind of transition to talking uh, more about your uh, legal background um, and just uh, so people can be more familiar about your experience getting into politics. Um, but uh, in a kind of way to transition as well from this conversation, um, what a lot of what I heard about during Trump's presidency is the election of judges, right? And um, the big talking point, at least at that point that I was hearing, is that they're taking all these judges from the Federalists like list or uh, you know, the federal society is, you know, recommending these people. So can you talk to me about uh, your uh, perspective of what that is um, and then how appointing judges is extremely impactful in terms of the long-term political uh, landscape? So you're cutting out a lot. I heard the Sorry. Federalist Papers of appointing judges and, and something about Trump, but you're cutting out like, you sound yeah, very yeah. low. Sorry, sorry. Uh, the microphone is just a little far away. Um, so I, what I was saying is um, I want to talk a little bit more about your legal background. Um, and um, to that point, in a way to kind of uh, move the conversation forward, I, a lot of what I heard about during Trump's time was the Federalist Papers. And just like you said, you know, the, the main way that the Republican Party is maintaining power is through the courts. So can you explain to some viewers, like, 
what the Federalist Society is, how their influence in recommending judges um, also kind of shifts the political landscape. And then also, yeah, to, from there, uh, also, if you want to talk about your legal background and how, uh, what uh, components of that you see as beneficial to helping progress the uh, Democratic Party. Yeah, so, um, you know, I am a, technically a retired attorney in New Jersey now, um, but uh, I went straight from law school and actually started working for the United States Senate. So straight from law school, I actually worked for Cory Booker straight out of law school. Um, and, you know, that's actually when I started to begin to see all of the problems in New Jersey politics. I mean, Booker's a little bit removed from the machine in some ways because he he has a national platform, et cetera. But then again, he has funders like the Norcrosses who for viewers that don't know, they are uh, party bosses down in South Jersey. Joe D is a major funder of his as well. He's a party boss in North Jersey. So he's not completely removed um, even though he pretends to be. Um, so that's what I did straight out of law school. Um, and when it comes to, you know, I mean, society, the federal society and, and organizations like that, that suggest judges, you know, those organizations are always going to exist. I think what the bigger issue is, is we have to win elections, <laughs> like, right, like we have to win elections so that they don't like Republicans don't actually have the power to appoint anybody. That's what has to happen. Um, and again, for all the reasons we've, we've been, we've been over in this conversation, you know, we've been taking constant L's um, and most of the L's really could have been avoided. Like there's so many L's that could have been avoided. I mean, if you just look at the parallel between how the Tea Party, um, you know, came to power, uh, they were originally an insurgent part of the Republican Party, similar to the way progressives are an insurgent part of the Democratic Party. The difference is Republicans saw how much that sect of the party fired up their base, and they essentially opened the floodgates for a bunch of Tea Party candidates to come in. Now, granted, Tea Party candidates are awful, right? Like they are some of the most horrendous um, folks when it comes to values and policies that actually help everyday people. They actually actively seek to hurt everyday people, um, especially marginalized folks, right? But suffice it to say, the Republicans opened the floodgates once they saw how much um, that group fired up their base. Whereas uh, conversely, when the Democrats see how much progressives fire up their base, they close the doors. They close as many doors as humanly possible to keep us out. Um, and we are not having, we're, you know, what the morale is terrible. The morale is very, very terrible right now. And, you know, people have low ratings. I believe, I believe about last week or maybe two weeks ago, Biden had hit the lowest um, approval rating of his time in presidency so far, right? Like, that's not good. That's really, really not good, especially heading into November. Um, so we have to win elections. Because, like you know, a federal society is not going to have any sway over, you know, a, a block, a voting block of progressive Democrats. Like, it's not going to matter. So we have to win elections. I, like all of this other stuff is just kind of like, it, it, it's fluff and it's stuff that gets in the way if we don't win elections. If we win elections, they can go away like that. So we really, really ha do have to win. And in order for that to happen, corporate devs need to get out of the way of their own base. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, 
random New Jerseyans running for office in different states, right? We have Eric Adams that ran for office in New York, and then we had now Mehmet Oz running for office in Pennsylvania. Like, what is that all about? Is that kind of just like, you know, the corrupt nature of kind of Jersey area extending outward? Um, or do you just have any general thoughts on that? Yeah, who knows what that's about? I, I don't know, because I mean, I've, it, it would be easier to pinpoint if like Dr. Oz and uh, Eric Adams had been like active in Jersey politics um, before deciding to run for those seats and be like, okay, like they're going over there because, you know, they couldn't swing it here. Um, yeah. But who knows? Who knows? It's, it's really interesting. I think there was another Democrat that ran like somewhere in the Midwest um, or like the West West, like Montana or somewhere as well. Um, so, and I know in the past, like there have been people from New Jersey running for mayor of certain towns in Delaware. So it does happen. Um, why it happens, I mean, who knows? It could be because of how difficult it is here. It could just be because people feel like resonate with other places uh, or maybe they didn't actually grow up here. I mean, I know a lot of people who do run for office here in New Jersey actually run because they're, they're from here and they have some type of connection and roots. So who, who knows? I, I can't pinpoint that at all, but um, it is interesting. I will say that. So on that note, what do you think about uh, the midterms and what, like, what do you think could be like a good rallying call for the Democrats? Because I, I did see um, we have like a few progressive victories. You mentioned Mary Newman, who lost her seat, but there was also another progressive that did gain a seat in Chicago uh, just yesterday as well. So what do you think should be like the rallying call in terms of the November elections coming up? Um, like, are we kind of pushing everything onto this John Fetterman, you know, nationalized race, or um, should we be going in with like a, a plan of like, what should we be doing about Roe v. Wade? Like, what would you suggest um, uh, for the Democratic Party as a whole as the message going into the midterm elections? Yeah, definitely. So there's definitely John Fetterman, right, that we have to get across the finish line, but there's also uh, re protecting uh, Rashida Tlaib's seat. Um, as well, because she is currently, there's a pack um, that is backed by, you know, Israel supporters as well as conservative Democrats trying to oust her out the seat right now. So, you know, there's also protecting that seat. Um, I also think for any progressives that we have on the state level, there should be a rallying cry to make sure we get them across the finish line. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes I think that progressives did in 2020 was they put so much into helping Biden that they neglected the state seats and they neglected down ballot and Republicans actually got a lot of wins down ballot. And that was a mistake because Biden again has all the tools at his disposal, right? He has all the tools at his fingertips. Um, sure, progressives could help in some ways in galvanizing the progressive base to vote for him. But I mean, how much energy was put into that really, you know, I don't think that was the best strategy when there were people down ballot who were progressives that we could have really gotten across. So yeah, sure, we didn't get our progressive in the presidency, but we could have gotten a lot of folks down ballot, especially on the state level. So I think um, one of the rallying calls needs to really be to get as many progressives as possible on the state level across the finish line um, as well, so that at least in that area, we can start to see some more numbers pick up. That, that makes sense. Um, would you consider Beto to be a progressive? Right. Would consider, you, I'm sorry. Would you consider something. Beto to be a progressive out in Texas, Beto or? 
So I wouldn't consider him a progressive, but he is much better than the alternative. Um, and I also think Beto is somebody who could be pushed on certain issues. Um, he does strike me as somebody who is willing to be pushed. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, he's a viable option, uh, one, to get rid of the person he's running against um, and have a Democrat there. Uh, and two, I do think he seems like a person that can be pushed uh, further to the left. So I, I do think that's that's a that's a decent cause as well. But again, he has I mean, he has all the backing of the Democrat. He has the might of the Democratic Party behind him, right? Same as Stacey Abrams. Like they have all the might and all the money behind them that they need. It's, it's progressives that really need that help and really need the rallying cry. No, that makes sense. Um, so uh, that's essentially all the questions I had. Um, I did, uh, if you do have time, want to talk a little bit about our experience working together um, at Working Families Party. I know it was like short-lived um, and I feel like a lot of what we talked about back then was like culture stuff, um, like my obsession with music. Are you, do you feel inspired by like all these like young artists that are actually speaking up right now um, about like, you know, of course the Supreme Court issue is extremely polarizing. Um, but does that give you kind of hope for the future? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I listen to like some of the worst music. I listen to the music that like your grandma warns you about, like that's my genre of music. So, I mean, it's great that younger artists are speaking out, um, but you know, we, I think we're in a different era. I think we're in an era where celebrity doesn't necessarily move people um, because we're in an era where, you know, so many promises have been broken. Um, so sure, it's great that they're speaking out, but I'm not, it's hard to say whether that will rock the boat or not um, because re, like people need to have things delivered um, for them. Uh, right. Like, you know, anybody getting out there who's getting millions of dollars from their label, um, you know, it's great that they're speaking out. It's great that they're, you know, fighting for people who don't have that. But at the end of the day, you know, their needs are mostly taken care of. Whereas everyday folks are like, well, it's great you spoke out about that. But like this elected official doesn't listen to your music and they're not like swayed by you. Um, so, and, and like people really need real things. So, I mean, it's great that more people are speaking out, but again, it just, it just speaks to how popular progressive policy is. Like progressive policy is very, very popular. It, like if you just look at the numbers, if you look at the numbers, I mean, if it's, it's, it's in popular music, <laughs> popular music, right? Like these things are very, very popular. These ideas are very popular. Um, it, the only people that are really stopping it at this point are Republicans and corporate Democrats. One thing that was really interesting to me, um, I stopped by Newark uh, recently and I went to my college campus and the new president of the university, um, I was at like an alumni reunion event um, I went with a bunch of my friends and everyone knew him because his son was like a famous TikToker and he was making like cooking videos. And I'm like, if that's like your claim to fame, like the whole economy is kind of shifting, right? Um, so like, what are, you, what are your thoughts on like this like influencer economy, right? Where, you know, you can literally just be making a video of like anything, like lawn, I saw like a lawn mowing uh, influencer that got like really successful. And then there was someone that worked at Amazon who was kind of just making fun of other TikToks that got successful. Um, so do you see that as like kind of in a way shifting democracy where essentially anyone can have a loud voice now? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I don't know if it shifts democracy, but it certainly shifts um, capitalism in a way because, you know, you can not vote for, excuse me, not work for these corporations um, and you can kind of do your own thing and reap the rewards of your own labor, right? So it, it shifts capitalism, whether it shifts democracy or not. Uh, I mean, I think the internet overall has done wonders in shifting who has a say um, and whose voices are actually heard. Um, the, the disconnect is being heard and then that connecting to like who is winning at the ballot box. Because again, if you're if you're on these sites, right, there are a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, Nazis as well and conservatives. There's also a lot of leftists, there's a lot of progressives, there's a lot of people speaking for these issues and making content about these issues. Um, and it, again, it just it points to its popularity. And I'm not sure how much it'll shift democracy if we don't have like structural change. Um, but it definitely helps to enhance the voices of the people who, again, are now the largest voting block in the country, which is millennials and Gen Z, um, largest voting block. So, and they have the biggest voices in these platforms. Uh, so it's really just a matter of making sure that once people's voices are heard, that these systemic mechanisms that block them from getting the people and the policies they actually want um, are in place so that you know, the people in who agree with them can go to the ballot box and really vote for the people that they want. So when, when you were thinking about your campaign, were you focused more on the ground or were you thinking about a digital strategy as well? Like, were you trying to bridge like the gap between like those two worlds of like, because traditional organizing is knocking on doors, right? And phone calls and things like that. But then COVID uh, like just changed everything where then it was more phone calls and dialer and stuff like that. So what was like your balance between like the traditional on the ground door knocking and, you know, whether it was social media co uh, content or phone banks, um, how did you kind of like, navigate like the post COVID uh, campaign? Well? Yeah. So I wanted to do all of it. Right? Yeah. Like I, I think when you run a campaign, your aim should be to get an A in all areas, get an A in comms, get an A in finance, get an A in field, get an A in digital, right? Like I think I wanted to do all of it. Would money allow for all of it effectively? No, that's just the reality of it. Uh, I raised half a million dollars, but again, you know, in this area to really be competitive, uh, especially with the bat line, you got to raise between two and three million. Um, so, you know, it's not really a matter of like, which one is better. I, if someone were to ask me advice, if they were about to run, I would say, you need to get an A in all of these areas. So you need to raise enough money so that you can have an A in all of these areas. Um, because I think when you can afford to have an A in all of those areas, you win. Uh, so I don't really, I, this notion of like digital versus field or whatever, you need both. Like you genuinely need to have both. Um, you need to get an A in those areas, you need to get A in finance, and an A in comms and earned media. So that's like media coverage um, as well. So, I mean, you know, I understand people have those conversations, like what's the most important sect of a campaign? Um, and it's like, you have to have an A in every area, because if you have an A in just like one or two, but an F in the other ones, then it's not going to be successful. Right, right. Uh, one, one thing I remember from my campaign um, in that area, in your area, is um, I got a lot of resistance. Like, for example, uh, I'm Muslim, or my family's Muslim. Um, I don't... Uh, particularly participate in religion, but 
I tried to speak at a mosque and I got pushback where people actually like pulled me out of the room and said, you can't campaign here. Um, this is like Baraka's territory or something like that. And they, like, they literally escorted me out. Did you face any like institutional resistance to your candidacy or like just uh, organizations that just flat out were like, we're not going to speak to you because you're not Donald Payne? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the state Democratic Party denied me van. Um, because I was running against an incumbent, uh, right? And so for viewers that don't know what that is, VAN is what you use, it's a field tool that you use to you know, locate voters and knock on their door and talk to them. And these state Democrats, not Republicans now, the state Democrats denied me access, which means I had to go pay um, a private corporation to have those similar features and get that data. Um, so I ran into that for sure. Um, people who had endorsed me, like individuals would get phone calls asking, like, why would you endorse her? Um, some people like were activists who didn't live in, they lived in New Jersey and did a lot of work in New Jersey, born and raised in New Jersey. But they were like, you're, you don't live in Essex County. Why are you in Essex County's business? Like real, like crazy stuff like that. Um, so like that type of stuff did happen. I mean, it's, the, it's what the machine here does. They try to intimidate and intimidate and intimidate um, to get their way. And which is sad because it's just like, why? For what? This is a state that really does have a large number of Democratic voters. So in theory, we could have the, the best sitting elected Democrats in the nation, in theory. But yeah. instead, they put up their worst talent and just try to bully people into believing that that best talent is like, uh, excuse me, that that worst talent is the best that they can do and the best that they have and the best out there, when really it's so incredibly lackluster. I mean, a great example of this, I actually talk about this with one of my uh, political friends all the time. When you look at the politicians from New Jersey who come up in New Jersey and they're like stars in New Jersey and then they run for president, they flop. And think about that, right? Like some of the biggest names in New Jersey when they run for president flop. And a big reason for that is because of how much stuff is manipulated in their favor in New Jersey that is not manipulated for them on the national level or everybody, you know, in their, who, who they're running against is having something manipulated for them. And then they can't hack it. So, you know, it's, it, it, that stuff happens. They try to intimidate people. Um, and it's really sad. It's, it's really sad because they have people who are just good, who are willing to run. Like they could just run good people who want to do the work, but instead they choose bully tactics. Yeah. And that reminds me of uh, one, like, like I said, I, I didn't work with you guys at Working Family for too long, but uh, the one uh, event that I do remember was the EDA pro protest that we had put together where they literally like dragged Sue out of the room. Um, and that was like the big power dynamic there was the Norcross machine in South Jersey. Um, so to that point, like what, what was your most proud accomplishment in working families because i know you guys did like you guys you know did advocacy against the eda you guys you know successfully lobbied for 15 hour minimum wage uh the legalization of marijuana which is now actually legal in jersey um what are you most proud of from your time at uh working families oh man well i would say what I'm most proud of is probably the relationships I built, to be honest, um, with other um, grassroots orgs. I think that was really the most, the biggest thing I took away from there. Um, you know, I'm not really too happy with what Working Families is or was, even when I was there. I think that they protect the governor too much um, and they don't, they don't really fight for progressives. Like the, the New Jersey Working Families Party is similar to what 
the New York Working Families Parties was back when AOC ran and they endorsed Crowley. Like their whole philosophy is, well, in New Jersey, if you want some power, you have to work with the machine. And that thought is completely backwards. So, and, you know, while working there, you're unfortunately under that type of backwards thinking. So really, I think the biggest accomplishment is being able to make a lot of connections with grassroots orgs um, and unions and those types of bonds and relationships where people are really actually just fighting for everyday people. I would think, I say those are probably, you know, my, my best memories at Working Families. To, to that point, uh, what do you think of uh, Murphy's leadership? Because he has proven to stand up for some issues like the minimum wage and uh, for, for the legalization of marijuana. Um, and he seems to at least entertain progressive ideology. Um, but then the Senate and the, uh, the state assembly are still you know, very divided um, in terms of whether they're going to support progressive policies or even support Murphy's agenda. Um, what do you think of how he's doing as a elected leader um, and the progress that Jersey is on? Because I think a lot of people view Jersey as one of the most progressive states in the nation, whereas there's also the corruption in politics, which gets kind of pushed to the back uh, burner. Um, so how do you think he's doing as governor and do you think that Jersey is trending progressive or is that kind of just like an affront to um, kind of put the uh, corruption conversations to the side? Yeah, so I mean, I think he's a progressive when it's beneficial to be a progressive. Um, and, you know, he does have things like marijuana uh, that he fought for and that we got through referendum. Um, but then you have things like um, his, the, the incident where one of the staffers on his campaign was raped and one of his uh, top staffers didn't do anything about it, didn't report it properly, didn't take the proper steps. And now they are the attorney general of New Jersey. Um, they're in the running for it. Uh, so, you know, that it's like, it's he's a progressive when he needs to be. He's a good old boy when he needs to be. Um, and in my opinion, somebody who waffles like that is not a progressive. I think when you are a progressive, there's a very solid line and a very solid history of progressivism that doesn't break and is very clear, um, especially on issues like um, like rape, right? Like that's it's very clear about stuff like that. So um, you know, I think he is a politician. I think that he's progressive when it suits him. I think he's a good old boy when it suits him. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what I would have to say about that. Do you think this uh, Steve Sweeney election was a kind of call out to that ideology where um, New Jersey is shifting more progressive? Or do you think that was kind of a fluke where he just lost his seat in the primaries to a completely unknown challenger? Uh, I mean, that's because of the ballot line. I mean, that's because, you know, one, Steve Sweeney is not liked. So again, you have this effect where you don't have Democrats going to the polls, right? They're not voting for a Republican, they're not switching, but they're also not showing up either to vote for that person. So you had a lot of people who just didn't vote for him. And then you had the Republican line because in the general, we still have the ballot line, right? It's just a Democratic line and a Republican line. Uh, so you had a bunch of people voting straight down that Republican line. Um, and in that particular position, you had more Republicans vote um, uh, for, you know, the Republican than Democrats that voted for Sweeney. Uh, so I think it just shows, again, it proves that if Democrats do not put up their best talent, their base will stay home and Republicans will come out every single time and Republicans will start to get more and more wins the more that the Democrats shun their base. 
I think he also, the opponent essentially ran as a populist, right? I think he was saying like he was a trucker or, or something. Of course, like a conservative populist, but uh, to me, I think that does also indicate the shift, but I, I agree 100%. The ballot line is, is definitely the most, uh, um, you know, absurd issue in Jersey politics specifically. Um, but yeah, that's essentially all I had for you. So uh, thanks so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Um, do you have any plans in terms of uh, work? I, I know you've been doing interviews with a QB uh, case study and, and things like that. Um, anything exciting to, to share about uh, you know potential media opportunities or just anything that you'd like to tout? Uh, sorry, so I, the, the last part you got a little bit low. I heard like what is something that are you excited about and then you got like low yeah or, or just like any like are you going to be on any shows that you want to promote or anything like that oh yeah no i mean this summer like i'm taking some time to definitely relax i campaigned for an entire year and i don't think people understand just how grueling that was i campaigned full-time also by the way like i was unemployed during that time so i'm taking some time out to relax um, but for anybody who wants to keep up with what I'm doing and my next steps, you can follow me on social media at Imani Oakley NJ10. So that's my first name, my last name, NJ like New Jersey, then the number 10. Um, on all social media, I'm on IG, Twitter, uh, Facebook, TikTok, uh, and YouTube. So you can keep up with me on all of those spots. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. Great catching up. Awesome. Take care.